podcast it has been far too long of a wait i put it out on twitter a while back i i got a little bit sick and flew flutastic and the real joy that comes with having the flu is not only just you know being bedridden for a little while it's that your voice does not come back online at the same speed as the rest of you so doing a podcast where you have to talk a lot is, is a bit challenging. And an episode like today's, where I am pretty sure I will be talking for at least a straight hour. Yeah, figured better to wait until we were completely healed and all the stuff was not swollen so everything could vibrate like it was supposed to. And I am ready to get right into this, because today we are covering movie number six. I hope it ends up being worth the wait. So thank you everybody for waiting and for your get well wishes. And while I was out, I posted a question on Twitter. What would you all wish for on the Millennium Comet? Because as we'll learn from today's episode, movie six is all about making wishes and stars in the sky and cosmic heaven movings and the like. And there wasn't a ton of time to act on this, but I did get one response from at AnimeGuy01 says, I would wish for unlimited money to be able to go to any con I want and meet many people and be able to support more people on Patreon. And dude, you are going all out on those wishes, like maximizing, <laughs> maximizing potential. And, and why not? Go big or go home. Personally, I think being able to go to any con I want is like the best of all of them, though. <laughs> but speaking of Anime Guy 01... The opening and ending themes were requested by him. And speaking of Anime Gaia 1, uh, the opening and ending themes for this particular podcast episode were requested by him. So if it works out, we have him to thank. I'm a little nervous. This mic picks up like every like wobble of the sound waves coming out of my throat. And I have not yet figured out how the autotune plugin works. But fun is fun, and Pokemon is all about challenging yourself, so <laughs> here goes nothing. Anyway, thank you everybody for tuning in to Movie 6, and as always, this podcast is brought to you by Poke Press. 
they've been uploading all sorts of videos about Pokemon and discussions about Pokemon. And most recently, an interview with a a winner in the TCG Seniors Division and also some info about the Ultra Prism pre-release. So for those of you needing to stay up to date on all your card game info, that is the video for you to check out in between watching the Olympics and everything else going on in the world. But a couple people have been flailing about Ultra Prism, and I have to say the cards look quite nice. And as I don't play competitively, I am absolutely fascinated by the people who do. So that is definitely an interview to check out. And also there are many other interviews to check out with other competitors in the gaming world of Pokemon and creators in the anime world of Pokemon. And also I am in a lot of those videos talking about Pokemon music. So definitely you should head on over to PokePress at YouTube and peruse their archives, get involved in some of the discussions. You can also find them at pokepress.blogspot.com. Now, let's get into this beautiful, beautiful movie episode. <laughs> like I said, we are covering movie six. Um, there is a Pikachu short attached to the DVD of this movie, but it, I don't believe it actually aired in the theaters. And since we're kind of getting into that time where a lot of the, the Pikachu shorts aren't, necessarily attached to specific movies anymore. I've decided I'm I'm going to start separating them from now on. So we'll do Got to Dance at a later date, possibly possibly immediately after this week depending on whether or not I can hold off of doing May's contest. Not only has it been a long time real world time because I've been out for a few weeks, but it's it feels like it's been a real long time in series and and that is in fact a bit of a sticking point of this movie. So for a little context, it was a couple episodes that may arrived in Slateport City and registered for the Pokémon League and it was stated that she had a bit of time like a couple weeks before the contest actually started. Like she had plenty of time. And she had I I think an episode or so of adventures in the meantime. Like, we don't know how long the time gaps in between those adventures were, but, you know, with Pokemon, we never do. Like, the time lapse could be a lot, but the episodes usually don't cover more than a couple days. So when this movie drops after the last episodes, like, she could still have a good week and a half or more before the contest actually starts. And normally, the series and the movies tend to line up fairly well, like reflecting who's in Ash's party, who's evolved, and all that jazz. I, I believe it was something they were a lot more conscious of at the start of the of the series. And I feel that recently, they've kind of just gone into straight-up don't-care territory. <laughs> but obviously, it's just good business sense to not, you know, make things too different than what the kids are seeing in the series. And... And like I said, they do try to keep it fairly continuity accurate. Like, it's rare that a movie episode drops when somebody's in the middle of something. Like, for example, in the middle of a tournament or something. And the only exception I can think of would be movie one, which got knocked way off its release date trajectory. Or, or rather, it didn't, but the series did. So that was a, a kerfuffle and a half. But usually the movies make my job of trying to do everything in order fairly easy. 
But occasionally there are some hiccups where the continuity works. It's not it's not a clear contradiction, but it does work a little better if you hold the movie off for like one week. And this is one of them, because right now, like I said, May, Ash and company are all cooped up in Slateport City preparing for May's upcoming contest. And as I said, they had a couple weeks before the contest, fair bit of time to say, go take a side trip. It's not impossible for the gang to have taken a quick detour in order to, like, see the festival and the Millennium Comet and plan to jet back in time for the contest. Like, maybe May needed to get away from Drew for a few days, I don't know. But, like, they had plenty of time. If this were an ordinary Pokemon movie, I wouldn't even question it. But, even though I'm releasing it now, I will admit it does work better to drop the movie after the next episode once the contest is over. This movie takes over a week in Universe 2 Complete. And while it's not impossible, again, for May to have that adventure and get back in time for her contest, even with some to spare, it's not as seamless as a movie that takes place when they're just out on the road somewhere and who knows where they went or what they did or what side quest they had. <laughs> but I made the schedule according to air date and by the time I noticed this, I was too in love with the idea of this unspoken tension in the movie of a ticking clock. So we're keeping it as it is and, and hope that everything doesn't fall apart. Like if I were May, I would have freaked out during this movie. Like conflicting schedules and time management are one of the things that make me anxious. All the more so because I'm always over scheduling myself and, and having trouble meeting deadlines. But this crew seems pretty chill. Like I don't think they're actually that bothered by the days ticking by. Like no one pulls out a calendar and is like, oh, sheesh, only a few days left until the contest. We sure we're going to get back in time? Because that is the big anomaly in this movie. It takes place over a week. And, and I think off the top of my head, that makes it the longest in-story movie. Because most of them, not counting like flashbacks and prologues, take place over one or two days. Once Ash enters the plot, he's usually out of the story in under 48 hours. And a few past movies, I've joked about these kids pulling all-nighters to save the world. Like, I think it was movie two that Ash was awake and running around for 40 hours straight. And, you know, we're not actually sure he went to bed after that. It's just when the credits started rolling. But this movie has no less than seven days. It's a long haul that these kids are going through. And that makes a difference when, when you realize that the kids aren't ducking out of Sleepport City for just a day trip. Although they probably thought they would be. They weren't expecting this side quest. But that is not the only thing that makes this movie different. And we will talk about so much more. But let's let's get right into this. Let's let's play and we open with the World of Pokemon intro. We show images of various Pokemon that we've met in past movies and it says the world is full of stories. One of those stories is a Mewtwo who defends the Johto region wearing a cape like it's freaking Batman. <laughs> like seriously, I would watch a whole spin-off series about that particular Mewtwo. It's so weird. Like, you don't think of Mewtwo as quirky because it's it's all tragic and emo all the time. But when you actually look 
yeah, this Mewtwo is a creative and bizarre little snowflake sometimes. <laughs> anyway, one thing I like about this year's intro is the narrator saying there's X amount of known species continuously adding to the Pokemon lore, but they don't do it alone. Like, the implication is the legends and lore of Pokemon are only important because of their connection to people. And I've always felt that about the show and the franchise as a whole, but it parallels something Satoshi Tajiri, uh, creator of the Pokemon games, said in an interview about how he thought American kids got the meaning of Pokemon a little better than the Japanese consumers. And his thoughts were that in Japan, most of the merchandise featured images of Pikachu at the time. It was and still is ridiculously popular, but all the t-shirts and all the plushies and all the toys were mostly of Pikachu. But in America, Tajiri saw the bulk of the merchandise featuring Satoshi and Pikachu together, and that made him happy because he'd always felt that Pokemon succeeded on the connection to others. It's why he fought for the trading feature in the Game Boy and, you know, making it impossible to achieve 100% completion without talking to a human being and linking your Game Boys. And he said it's not just about Pikachu, it's not just about Pokemon and the cute little creatures. You need the human connection. You need Ash. So I like that there's some emphasis on that here, that the legends of Pokemon don't exist without humanity, in the same way that humans and Pokemon team up for, quote, sporting events. Like, all around, this narrator is just describing Pokemon in a way that's like, yeah, that's that's how I've always perceived this world. We are dialed in on the same frequency. And the intro bleeds right into the prologue. Like, like they're basically the same thing. As the narrator's explaining the world and Team Magma, we also see a man and a woman finding a strange thing buried in the rock before moving on to Ash's character intro. And then we're cautioned to be careful what we wish for. So, the movie opens proper. Ash and the kids have traveled inland for a festival featuring something known as the Millennium Comet. And it's a pretty big deal, this Millennium Comet. As its name implies, it only appears once every thousand years. So that's a big enough reason for them to have left Slateport City with presumably... A uh, little more than a week, week and a half before May's contest. But as I said before, I also assume they weren't expecting to be gone more than a day or two. I don't think they've actually traveled too far into this valley. Like, it probably was only like a day's walk at most, which for them is not a big deal. And so far, they're the only ones who have traveled to this valley. When they arrive after dark, no one's there. So maybe the guidebook made a mistake? After they go to bed, though, that's when someone arrives and, to the credit sequence, sets up the circus. Now, I love me a good action-packed remixed theme battle opening, but this opening to silence and then, like, subtle scoring is pretty boss. Like, I love the scoring choices in this movie overall. It's so quiet. Like, such interesting choices, and as much as I love the four kids' time on the anime run, their style of doing things was less a translation, especially in the beginning, as much as an American adaptation. However you feel about that, that, that was the deal they brokered and the company goal, but this, and, and 
yeah, movie five did it too a bit, keeping the original score. But to this degree, and on a movie with such a different sensibility, completely different pacing, completely different vibe, I remember when it released thinking that this was the most anime thing I'd seen out of Pokemon in a long time. And on the English side of things, no less. Like, especially on the English side, that wasn't a thought I typically had about the Pokemon series. But even on the Japanese side, like, the Pokemon TV show is animated and is technically an anime, but being that it is for kids and it's, you know, just achieved a level of fame that's almost otherworldly and it has just always had sort of its own vibe, it doesn't follow a lot of the anime tropes that many of its peers do. Like, Kanto era did. But once it kind of passed out of that and into Johto and, and got more mainstream, it became its own thing. It didn't have that experimental feel or a lot of, like I said, the other anime tropes that a lot of other shows were doing. And that's not necessarily a detriment because Pokemon basically paved its own way and became its own genre. But in doing so, it did break out of that, that je ne sais quoi anime vibe that ha makes anime its own genre, even though it actually encompasses like 500 different styles of storytelling and styles of art. But when we say anime as a genre, that means something in a way that we can't always put into words other than it comes from Japan and is animated. But even mainstream properties in anime, you feel kind of like you're watching an indie movie or an experimental film. Like the pacing and the world building and the imagery is something apart even compared to Japanese live action media and other storytelling taking place within that country. Anime is its somehow its own thing, and yet Pokemon is removed from that even. Just because of what it is and what it needs to do and Again, just that it got so famous and popular. Its branding is its own thing. But yeah, compared to other Japanese shows, I often forget that Pokemon is part of that. And especially in the United States under the four kids era, seeing this movie reminded me that, oh yeah, Pokemon is an anime. I'm not explaining it well, but I'm just trying to convey that this movie is different. And I love how it breathes. I think this was the first movie adaptation to be directed by Eric Stewart as well, and I sometimes wonder if that played a part in this trend over the next few movies, like to not fight the differences in the storytelling and working so hard to Americanize the movies. Like, different director brings different perspective. It, it may have made a difference. It also may not have. Like, it could have just been that this project needed the, these particular things. But I am glad for it, both because this movie is just a special little gem, and also, like, as much as I love the opportunity to do something different with adaptations, because my background is theater, and that's basically every script you do is something different than what the other guy did, because otherwise, what's the point? But for kids... <laughs> has 
given a lot of very problematic interviews in the past where they've bragged about how by the time they're done adapting a cartoon, you don't even know it's from Japan anymore. And that that doesn't sit exactly right with me. So in many ways, the fact that this movie was different from the past fair in the original Japanese, and it's the first movie of the four kids side to just kind of roll with that and embrace the uniqueness is very special to me. Again, I don't think every movie needs to do what this movie did. I don't think every adaptation should be afraid of trying something new necessarily. But the fact that this one is what it is, it's like a comet that only appears once every thousand years. It's special. And with that, I do feel that Advanced Generation is the era of the four kids run on Pokemon where they really started to hit their stride. And you can tell that everyone working on the project has an understanding of what they're working on and that they love it. Anyway, enough of my rambling that probably didn't make a ton of sense. Anyway, the gang wakes up to the sound of trucks rolling in, hauling Ferris wheels and equipment, rides and booths and merch. Overnight, the festival gets set up and the kids watch in awe, especially once a magician and his assistant show up because they can't resist even the mundane act of setting up to be without illusion tricks. There's a part of me wondering if the rest of the crew isn't just like, oh, come on, can't you guys just hammer in some nails like normal people? <laughs> then again, you gotta make the job fun, right? Come dawn's early light, everything's all set, the crowds come in, and our kids hit the festival hard. They go on all the rides, eat all the food, and find a flyer for the Great Butler's Magic Show. That's the guy who was setting up a tent earlier. It, it looked like he had some talent. <laughs> but questionable hiring skills. He hired three clowns and roustabouts known as Team Rocket. Somehow they managed to get hired on for the week. No background checks involved, obviously. But the kids don't know that, so they go to the show and it begins. Butler's got some nice opening tricks, calling Swablu out of a hat, making a curlia appear out of nowhere, and then setting fire to it and transforming the whole thing into a beautiful lady with a glowing rock. Ash is impressed and like, this dude is just poning Melvin and... That bar was not set super high, so... Though, since I'm digging up a reference to Melvin from freaking Kanto, not to spoil, but Ash may walk away from this movie determined never to trust a magician again. Anyway, Brock's over the moon about the power to make beautiful women appear out of thin air, but Max is awed by something else. The rock in the assistant's hands... It glows uh, all nice and showy, but Max hears a voice. Something about wishing and a star. He keeps hearing it while Butler takes his bows and thanks Curly and Mightyena and Diane for their parts in the show. Max only has eyes and ears for the rock. Wishmaker. The comet. Something is calling to Max and it's super trippy. He starts having a conversation with this rock on stage, and I guess no one else hears the voice, so when Max stands up and runs on stage to, to, you know, come find me, as the voice asks, his friends are a little confused. And so are the magicians. But when Max says he thought he heard a voice, 
Butler and Diane seem to know what he's talking about. And as we'll learn later, they might have brought that rock on stage in front of a large group of people on purpose just so someone in the crowd might hear something. Now, as a side note, when Max leaves his chair and rushes the stage, it's Ash who's sitting closest to him, which is probably why it's him and not May on child wrangling duty. But I just love that shot where Max starts running and Ash just shoves his popcorn at May and leaps from his seat and hits the ground running. Like he is so settling into his role as team dad. Goodness, do I get a kick out of the team dynamic where everyone just takes it as a given that Ash is in charge. Because you never get the feeling that he particularly wanted it that way. It's... But it's just like, it just happens. He's like water. He fits whatever shape of the container. Like, oh, no one else is stepping up to deal with this? Okay, I guess I'm looking after the small children now. Well, Ash runs on stage to apologize for Max and get him off the stage. But Butler and Diane, they got some improv skills. They know how to keep it from ruining the show. And they make Ash and Max part of the next trick. And I love when Diane asks their names... I think this was just an English edit to fit the lip flaps, but Ash is like, I'm Ash, and then Max replies, I'm Max. Beat. The Great. It just tickles me. And fits their characters, because Ash is just standing there with all his innate confidence, like, he doesn't need an intro longer than his name. And Max is looking small and awkward and stiff, and maybe trying to look equal to pseudo-big brother over there, like... When an adaptation or a line change can reveal something new and expand on a character, like, that's when I love it best. I should point out, since I'm bringing up, like, lip flaps and all that, this, typically for a movie, I like to watch it in English and Japanese, and sometimes other languages if I can, to kind of just give a breadth of what's going on between the different language tracks and and, any dub edits that were different, that kind of thing. Because while I do feel like a lot of the translation and characterization is very much in the spirit of the original Japanese cast and and their acting choices, there are times when they are different, and I do like to point that out. Like, sometimes Rika Matsumoto's choices for Satoshi and Veronica Taylor's choices for Ash don't mesh completely into, like, different halves of a whole. And when that happens, I do like to point it out. But today, like, I have seen it in Japanese a couple of times, but I do not own it in Japanese. And so today we're watching only in English and like a little bit in French. So I know there are a couple dub changes from Japanese that I am going to talk about, but I don't have the actual original track on reference. So it does curb some of my observations. But as I understand it, there were a lot of differences between dubbing and adapting this movie. Like, I think a lot of Latin American countries and some European countries that don't typically do individualized dubs did this time, and vice versa, and there were some cast changes or something. Like, I'm finding in my research, like, a whole bunch of notes. It's like, and in Finland, they did this, and that was different than every other time they did it. And and in this country, they actually did a completely different dub. Like, so that's interesting. And if you're from a country that 
would have watched a different dub than English or Japanese and, you know, you have favorite actors or favorite moments, like, feel free to write in and tell me because that is something that's very interesting to me, especially other actors' acting choices. It's kind of a gift from an acting perspective to be able to look at the same character played by several different people. And even though the change in language will dictate to some degree some of your acting choices, it's still really quite fascinating. So definitely, if you have some perspective on like the Finnish dub and any of these other movies where they they did something a little bit different than they usually did for movie six, like, let me know. Especially for little things like this, little scenes where, you know, it's kind of a throwaway line. It doesn't really change the meaning of the scene at all. It probably was just to fit the lip flap. But when an adaptation or a line change can reveal something new and expand on the character, like, that's when I love it best. Anyway, the trick that Ash and Max get roped into is Butler's burning box. And I love how Team Rocket are the stagehands and they're probably so gleeful. Like, oh my gosh, we're going to make the twerp disappear and set him on fire. Like, yes, this is a dream come true. Like, it really is one step away from being a steel Pikachu scheme. Up in the audience, Brock and May are upset that they don't get to be a part of the show. Like, Ash and Max have all the luck. It's like, well, May, you could have looked after your own little brother. Like, I'm a little surprised she didn't come running down herself, like come chasing after Ash and Max. But again, everyone just takes it for granted that Ash is the authority figure. I bet she was all like, oh, Ash has got it. No need to let my ice cream melt. Anyway, on stage, Ash and Max have heard about this burning box and Max is turning to Diane like, but we're not really magicians. As, as if anybody was confused about that. But not to worry, they're told it's safe and they are ushered into the box. Butler tells the audience Ash and Max will have to escape the box in 10 seconds before a Dusclops obliterates it with hyperbeam. Ash starts to get a little nervous. I mean, he and Max have to trust that this is a trick and just sit tight, but... I think he's a little close to going MacGyver on the box. Like I said, it is so close to being a Team Rocket scheme. And if he's noticed those clowns look sort of familiar, then I bet his subconscious is ringing all kinds of alarm bells. Anyway, at the last second before Hyperbeam hits, the floor of the box opens up and Max, Ash, and Pikachu all fall through a trapdoor, landing on a cushion below the stage. While the audience is misdirected to a bunch of falling bouquets from the sky, a track rushes our three heroes to the other side of the tent, where they will reappear through another trapdoor, now part of the crowd. Very impressive. And while he was a little nervous when it was actually happening, Ash now dials up his showmanship to play to the audience. And now, I mentioned this felt so much like a Team Rocket scheme... Well, once Ash and Pikachu ended up in the magic show, I guess Team Rocket just couldn't let that go. They're back on stage for a final bow. Team Rocket whips up a robotic arm and a trapeze thing and swipes Pikachu right off Ash's back. They've also stolen Curlia and Mightyena. They've got them in a net and are sailing away on a trapeze attached to a small blimp. The getaway is helped by Meowth up in the lighting grid. So maybe they never were here for a simple part-time job. Or at least those good intentions did not last long. They never do. 
they may have been planning the theft of of Butler's Pokemon for a bit. Although it it does seem that the the kidnapping of Pikachu was just good timing. And again, Butler just works it into the show, like, ladies and gentlemen, our encore! Dusclops, he calls for an attack, and it's technically Will of the Wisp. For whatever reason, it got changed to something else in English. And I do kind of find that choice interesting. Like, there's a sense that a magician would want to have code names for attacks, so that sometimes they could not fully give away how you're doing the trick. Because there's definitely no rule in this universe that you have to call an attack by its given name, or in fact, have to call attacks vocally at all. So whatever you call the attack, whatever name you give it, Dusclops sets Team Rocket on fire. That's the important thing here. They try to cling to the charred and breaking ropes of their trapeze, while Pikachu falls down and into Ash's arms. It's so cute. Like, Ash basically lunges off the edge of the stage to catch him, and it's Max who grabs Ash to pull him back from going completely over. After that, Ash and Pikachu are ready for an encore of their own. They use Thunderbolt to free Mightyena and Curlia, who land as if this was always part of the show. Like, ta-da! Butler, Diane, and their team, like, they just roll with punches like nobody's business. And Dusclops turns Team Rocket into a vanishing act with Nightshade. You know, this Pokemon battle has got me thinking, like, there's so many Pokemon that, you know, can use psychic attacks and levitate things and teleport and teleport themselves and others and use illusions and, you know, make people think what they want, make them fall asleep, all these things. It's kind of impressive that people go to see a legit magic show. And that Butler can pull that off and make it interesting, like proper sleight of hand. Like, the Pokemon attacks make the show more dynamic and fun, but in the context of the actual magic show, they're not actually performing the trick. It's all, like, trapdoors and misdirection, etc. And that just strikes me as interesting, because you'd think someone like Duplica or whatever could have a, a Ditto or a Zoroa or something take the role of Diane in this in this magic show and make people disappear or reappear or transform into other things. But Butler's show doesn't involve any of that. And maybe that's what makes it all the more impressive in the Pokemon world, that Butler is taking the time to learn these arts of sleight of hand and all that and put on a a magical act that doesn't rely on Pokemon attacks. That kind of adds to the awe of, like, oh my gosh, how did he do that if, if, again, he's not using Pokemon to pull it off? And I guess that's the draw of magic in the real world, too. Like, I mean, it's not like we actually think these magicians are doing anything supernatural up there as much as we're just impressed by the physical skill of being able to present something wondrous looking that we can't as yet figure out how it occurred. But either way, it's not a typical magical act, but Team Rocket is certainly vanished from sight. And after the show, the kids reunite with Brock and May from the stands, and they all talk to Butler and Diane about the weird voice Max is hearing. And the adults tell the kids that it's the Pokemon Jirachi, an extremely rare Pokemon that appears only once every thousand years, with the appearance of the Millennium Comet. 
The rest of the time, it's housed in this glowy rock cocoon, and it sleeps. Jirachi supposedly needs two things to wake up. The comet, of course, and it needs to find a friend. Which is why it's calling out to Max. Like, if someone doesn't befriend me soon, I'm gonna miss my thousand-year window, and these two fools are just not cutting it. Like, I don't know what it is that makes someone a good friend candidate for Jirachi, but for whatever reason, it's chosen Max, and not the two people who found it in the first place. Like, I don't know why. It's like, Jirachi needs to find a friend, and it takes a look at Diane and Butler and just goes, nope. <laughs> It all sounds a little weird, like Max is hearing voices and now has to befriend a rock so that a magical wish-making Pokemon can appear for the first time in a thousand years, but only for seven days. It's a little odd, but but it's not the weirdest thing we've ever seen go down in the Pokemon universe, or, or even within the last three months. So Max agrees to babysit the glowing, speaking rock of destiny until it hatches or whatever's supposed to happen with it. While Max takes his new pet rock with him around the festival, May does what she does best, shopping. She stops by a vendor when she sees a cute little doodad on display, a sort of hanging ornament or charm, and it's kind of shaped like a seven-pointed star. When she asks about it, she finds that it's a wishing star. You turn down one point of the star every night that the Millennium Comet is in the sky, and if you do it all seven nights, your wish will come true. So May buys it, and it's nighttime now. The festival starts shutting down. Our kids find a nice, quiet spot to try and see the comet. Even though it's cloudy, there is a break in those clouds just enough for them to look up and see a beautiful comet. Truly glorious. And the kids marvel. May makes her wish. Brock gets a bit philosophical, like the last time people looked up and saw that comet, it was a thousand years ago, and looking down, the world must seem like a different place. A lot of things have changed. And there's a quiet little moment between the characters looking up the sky that's, like many things in this movie, just very softly profound in a way. Like, I love the shot of Ash and Pikachu, you know, sitting on the grass and looking up at the comet. And something about that sight moves Pikachu to jump onto Ash's shoulder. Like, something about this urges him to get closer to Ash. And it's a subtle beat, but I do think it matches the overall theme of the movie, which we'll talk a bit more about the end, but this is kind of a period of Pokemon movies where they were less tied to the plot and event, like it was less about the events, and it's more about the singular emotional theme that everything else kind of revolves around. And movie six is the most subtle of these, of, you know, six, seven, eight, which I think are kind of where that type of storytelling was most employed. Movie six requires a lot more thought to realize what the theme of this movie actually is. And on the surface, and, and with the advertising and the tagline, like you'd think like, oh yeah, the theme of this movie is wishes and you make your own wishes come true. But that is a very superficial way of looking at this movie's themes. It's it's something much deeper. And these little moments like this 
between all four kids looking at the comet ties into that a lot more. So like I said, we'll talk a bit more about that later when we have a bit more movie to draw from. Max being a kid falls asleep soon after seeing the comet in the sky. It's quite late at night. And May takes the opportunity to actually be nice and familial. Like, you don't want to do that when your brother's awake, please. It's it's against the older sibling guidebook. But once he's asleep, like, yeah, she'll stroke his hair and wish him good night and even sing a lullaby when their mother used to sing. Caroline is a fan of J-pop, I guess. Now, I'm not 100% on this because it's not... It's not spelled out for us in the credits, but I have read in a lot of of places that they actually didn't dub over May's singing voice in most of the scenes where she's singing uh, Chisaki Mono, A Small Thing, Make a Wish, whatever, whatever title you're going with. And like I said, this is the one where I don't own it in Japanese, so I couldn't compare and contrast in time for the recording. But I have in the past compared the two after I, I heard that little bit of trivia. And to my untrained ear, it did sound more like Kaori than Veronica here. But, you know, that's not an expert opinion. It's a question that sometimes gets asked at conventions, like when voice directors and whatever are on the panel. I think there was one point Veronica Taylor said she did so many episodes of Pokemon in so many movies that she almost isn't quite sure if she remembers one way or the other. But while I can't find any hard data in, like, the English credits, I do feel fairly confident in saying that, yeah, it sounds like May's voice was retained from the Japanese dub for when she's singing. I've also read by those same sources that certain other dubs, um, other than English, did dub over May's singing voice, and, you know, ha- others have kept the original Japanese. I have no idea which which dub did which, so if you have a little more knowledge on that... Feel free to write in. Anyway, while May is singing, that Jirachi rock starts glowing, and all this magical revival music is really reminding me of another movie. And that rock that Max is holding isn't the only one glowing either. Elsewhere, an Absol watches over an entire canyon that's lighting up like Vegas. Absol looks concerned and leaps off into the distance. But we don't know why yet, like, this Absol is not telepathic, unlike Jirachi, so any unhappy implications of this light show will have to wait for Act 2. For now, Jirachi awakens. The rock dissolves in light, and what remains is this adorable yellow-and-white wind chime thing. Jirachi is just the cutest. The kids introduce themselves to the now-awake Pokémon, and they all make friends. And then Diane runs up. Freak, but Diane is beautiful. Like, not at all relevant to the scene, but she is. My word, that woman. And she's still pulling off hot pants at that age. Total short skirt, long jacket situation. Darn it, I want to look that good running across the grass in the middle of the night. Like, Diane kind of steals the movie for me. She's just... Beautiful. I I think I have a crush. Like, I am totally distracted by Diane's character design. She's also just a pretty great character in general. But anyway, she's gonna go tell Butler that there's a legendary Pokemon floating among us. And here's where we learn that Butler's got a bit of a mad scientist machine set up inside his stage. Like... 
The trapdoors open up in the floor, and there's all sorts of super weird equipment and a satellite dish pointed up at the comet. And Diane looks a little worried, like not as enthused about all this as Butler, who is like 100% dialed up to 11 at all times. Like, we've not seen a scene where he's not like, da-da, this is the greatest show, and he's just so jazzed about everything he's doing. But what he's doing right now, like I said, involves a lot of weird science equipment and generally being obsessed and Diane looking nervous. Like, maybe we don't want him to be so excited. Meanwhile, our heroes have been invited to to sleep on Butler and Diane's bus, which I think is info that should have been established a couple of scenes prior, like not right after Jirachi hatched. Because when Diane extended that invitation, it sounded a bit like the offer was conditional, like, oh, you hatched a Pokemon, you can bunk with us, but, you know, if they hadn't managed it, like, maybe they'd be left out in the cold. Which, seeing Butler just now, might be the exact breadth of the situation, but Diane seems nicer than that. Anyway, on the bus, the kids are trying to figure out if Jirachi really can grant wishes. So Max tests it by wishing for candy. Lots of candy. It takes a minute, but soon candy comes raining down from the sky. It's amazing. Max asked for lots of candy, and that's exactly what he's getting. The kids are buried in it. But like most stories involving wishes, you gotta be real specific in your wording. Because that candy did not come out of thin air. Jirachi didn't create it. It's teleporting it from all the local vendor carts. So while Max is relishing his good fortune, some poor store owner is seeing his profits and his mortgage and his family's livelihood go up in flames, like, this man's children may not be able to eat now. But the kids don't know that, they just know that Jirachi can grant wishes. And now they all want a piece of it. Brock wishes for lots of girls. May and Ash start a tug-of-war over Jirachi. Finally, the trailer can't hold all the candy, ego, and infighting, and the back doors burst to let the whole mess come tumbling out. Butler and Diane run up and notice that all the candy came from the stalls from the festivals. So just after May takes a huge bite of a candy bar, the kids learn that all the candy is technically stolen. May's kind of mad. Mostly, I think, just because she's made an accessory to theft. Jirachi can just teleport the candy right back, so May screams at it, like, Get rid of it! Get rid of the problem! Like I said, real specific wording with wishes. I've read enough monkey's paw stories to be wary. Jirachi teleports May into the center of the candy stack. And it feels to me that Jirachi might also have been being a little passive-aggressive. It is on Max's side, after all. And I am suspicious, like highly suspicious, over whether or not Jirachi can actually grant wishes. Or whether that's kind of part of the myth and lore that's been surrounding it. And like the theme, that is another thing we'll talk a bit more about later. But keep in mind, all it's done is teleport. <laughs> but more importantly, this is one of those scenes that I think was very tricky to translate. Because the English here, like how May words that wish, there's nothing technically wrong, but it is quite awkward. 
like knowing what May wanted to accomplish, no one would have worded their sentence like that. Get rid of the problem. We'd say something like, get rid of this candy, put the candy back, undo the wish, a lot of other options to accomplish the goal that she had, but get rid of the problem sounds like a reach. Like, that could be misinterpreted as anything. And, and forget misinterpreted, I'm not sure anyone would have understood it in the first place. Like, dude, thank goodness Jirachi didn't get rid of the problem by wiping out all the witnesses. And why did it assume May was the problem? Like, you can explain how Jirachi might have concluded that, but it's weird. It's, it's awkward and it's a stretch. And I bring this up because we all have opinions on how dubs work and how well translation goes down. And I think people don't appreciate how hard it is to actually provide an accurate translation between some languages. And in the case of English to Japanese or vice versa, that's part of why I put so much effort into learning the language. Like, not just because I enjoyed it, but growing up in Canada, I was always surrounded by French. And there are certainly differences that are hard to translate, um, both in the semantics of words and the culture behind those words. But comparatively, it is easier. Like, French and English share a lot of words, and the sentence structure is largely in the same order. Typically, our subjects and our verbs and our particles, etc., kind of follow similar-ish rules in a similar-ish order. It is easier to translate in real time. It is easier to provide a word-for-word translation. And obviously, there is so much more to communication, but that makes a difference. With Japanese, like, I realized after one high school semester that all the shows I'd watched, all the interviews I'd heard, all the books I'd read, even people I'd talked to, like, I'd never actually experienced those things. Like, any Japanese exchange student I'd spoken to was through someone translating for me. I'd never actually heard what they said, because you can't translate it in the same way. The grammar is completely backwards. You have to rearrange the sentence. You have to add extra words that weren't there, explain words that English doesn't have a concept for or vice versa, omit stuff the speaker didn't say, and so now it sounds like broken English. Like, it is true of many languages, and and French wasn't immune to that, but the gap was just so glaring to me in Japanese, and I realized that if I didn't learn to be marginally competent in that language, then there would always be this wall there. Like, going through life with big rubber gloves on, it's like, you you can function, but you've not really touched anything. You don't actually know what things feel like. And the more I progressed through languages, French as well, like, I realized there really is no such thing as a perfect translation. Like, the subs versus dubs argument, like, it doesn't matter. Both are taking massive liberties just to get the basic concept across. Like, there are purposes to both, but if you're trying to go for moral superiority, like, I watch with subs so it's more accurate than the dub, and therefore I'm more worldly, like, you're you're kidding yourself. Like, love your subs. They are helpful. They're so helpful. But don't pretend it's doing more than it is. 
as accurate as they try to be, they're still not word for word because from Japanese to English, that is an impossibility. And one of the reasons translation is so dicey and which applies to this scene is that English is a very direct language and Japanese is not. And that's not just a cultural thing. Like, it is part of Japanese culture to sort of hedge things. <laughs> like, you typically would say, I don't really like it, rather than I hate it. Stuff like that. But in the language itself, like, so much of Japanese speech drops pronouns and drops subjects, drops particles, drops time, drops objects, and just generally expresses things in an indirect manner. For example, the phrase urusai typically gets translated as shut up or be quiet. And most people would think that's pretty accurate as to the spirit of what the person was trying to say, but that's not what it means. The word urusai is just an adjective, like the person is just saying loud, not specifying who is loud, that they want the loudness to stop, or even that the loudness is unpleasant, just loud. But it gets translated as be quiet or shut up, because that's what the person meant. It's not a word-for-word -word translation, but it is a purpose-for-purpose -purpose translation. But in that one word, you see my point. In a cultural way, the speaker is being indirect. And in a verbal way, they are being indirect because there's no subject, there's no object, like there's just one adjective. And you'll find that with a lot of translations, the subtitles might add names or places, and you're like, I didn't actually hear those words come out of the character's mouth. And that's because in conversation, a great deal of things are implied. Subjects get dropped, sentences get shortened. It's just how Japanese language works sometimes. I swear I'm going somewhere with this. Just hang on for the ride. But even the phrase konnichiwa, like hello, is actually just part of a full sentence that nobody says anymore and hasn't for, like, centuries. It's been reduced now to today, ellipses. Like, if you want a literal translation, you shouldn't translate it, it as hello, but we do, because that's what people mean, basically. And every language has stuff like that. Like, the French dub of the Disney movie Tangled, they had to change the title because the verb to tangle has double meanings in English of being complicated. But in French, that same verb has a double meaning of confused. So the title doesn't really play. And it was impossible to give a literal translation of that movie's title. Disney had to just change it and I think ended up calling it something more mundane like Rapunzel or something. And then like literal words aside, there's also symbolic meaning and metaphor for a Pokemon example, remember back in movie 3 when Molly takes Adelia's hand and says, I want things real again, the Japanese track said something like, your hand's really soft. Like, the sentiment was about the same, the meaning of what Molly wanted was about the same, but in Western convention and storytelling, we value it being a bit more direct and in Japanese conversation and storytelling, they value being a bit more indirect and implying stuff, which makes, again, a direct translation hard. And it's why I've recently started trying to make distinctions between translations and adaptations, because a translation should be 
you know, as close as possible. <laughs> but if it's an adaptation, then I do think it's better to get the spirit of the words rather than the letter. And when you don't, particularly when the languages are so different grammatically and culturally like English and Japanese, if you don't take some liberty, the words get awkward and empty. And while I don't have the Japanese copy of the movie in front of me now, like I said, we're, we're going off my memory and knowledge of the language, I'm willing to bet that's what happened here. Like, whatever Haruka Mei told Jirachi, I bet it was indirect as a broken compass. Like, there probably weren't a lot of subjects and objects involved in her sentence. She may have even just thrown out a single verb at Jirachi and called it good. Which, in the context of the scene, would have made it super easy for Jirachi to completely misinterpret what she said. So what the translators now have to do is not only capture the sentiment of what May is saying, they've also got to word it in a way that is similarly vague, that fits the lip flaps, and plausibly explains Jirachi's reaction to it. Like, that is an uphill battle. I mean, there's no way. Like, even if you had May or the subtitles say the exact literal words, or more likely word in that line, you'd need extra words to convey negative or tense or command form, the imperative or whatever terms, because Japanese conjugates differently than we do, too. <laughs> like, so... Next time you see a translator, like, go hug them. They have a hard job, is what I'm trying to say. Like, basically what I'm trying to convey is, like, this is such a tiny scene, it's a tiny line, but it's the perfect opportunity to showcase just how translation in general is very hard, let alone when you have to match it to pre-recorded images. <laughs> and I definitely think this is one time where it must have been brutal because the line they settled on, like, is awkward as all get out. And it's like, if that's the best they got, then it just must have been a beast working on this scene. But now that I've bored you all and may just sit through my language splaining, uh, let's get back to the story. After filling a bus with candy and zapping me a few feet, Jirachi's wiped out and sleepy. I know it just woke up, but it goes back to bed. Butler says that's nothing to worry about. It just needs to recharge with a good night's sleep. It's just... What? It's not been getting enough lately? <laughs> like, And nice, Jirachi falls asleep before returning all the candy. Like, freak, these kids are gonna have to go do it in person. Lug all that candy and face the poor shopkeeper who's lost business over this for a few hours. Like, even if the candy gets returned. I mean, on the other hand, in the Pokemon world, this kind of thing probably does happen a lot. Like, kind of like the neighborhood kid accidentally kicking a ball through your window. Like, with all these Pokemon running around, it's probably not so uncommon that a stray special attack causes trouble to some of the businesses around you. And hopefully this guy is the forgiving sort. But they take care of all of that off camera, and we cut to morning, where Max is hovering over a sleeping Jirachi like a creepy stalker. Jirachi wakes up and he's right there, like, yeesh. 
And now that Jirachi's awake, uh, it and Max can go running off through the festival, riding the rides, eating the legitimately purchased candy, and doing all the fun stuff. Ash, Brock, and May decide to fill the staffing void left by Team Rocket. Butler and Diane need some stagehands that aren't criminals, and Ash and Brock are more than happy to dress up as goofy clowns. Uh, or, or maybe they think it's high fashion. Like, remember that one festival they attended with a magic show where they just ripped off their clothes in the middle of the street to reveal orange frilly suits and maracas and think Brock had a sombrero? Like, these two are having a great time. May helps in a less potentially embarrassing capacity backstage. Um, but Team Rocket, though, they have not gone far. Their Meowth head balloon blends right in with all the other floats and balloons around here. So they're spying on the twerps and this Jirachi. A Pokemon that can grant wishes? Like, yeah, they're all over that. And showing more savvy than the twerps, Jesse's aware that there might be a catch to the wishing. Like, maybe Jirachi can only grant one. So, like, think before you speak. Meanwhile, as the evening draws to a close, Absol has arrived at the carnival. And it may just be coincidence, but that's when we start seeing some trouble in paradise. Jirachi always wants to play, but... There's moments, like when May is struggling by her 10-year-old self to hold up some falling lighting tree, that, you know, maybe playing isn't so great. So Max, you know, starts going to help May, but then Jirachi steals his glasses and they leave May to destruction and injury. May fumes a bit about that. But it takes a backseat because Max finally catches his glasses and Jirachi over by a mirror and I don't know what it is about production design, but you can't have a mirror in a movie and have it just be a mirror. It's always gotta mean something. And Max hears a strange sound coming from behind him. And then there's this flapping. The tent has a tear in it, and it's flowing in the breeze, letting all the outside symbolic dangers in. And then the music just dies. And then there's this growling absol, like... We are in a horror movie. Then Absol breaks through the mirror like a herald of death. Like, that is a cool entrance. Cool, but not a great thing. Absol starts attacking stuff, and Max and Jirachi have to run. There is a really cool trick where they run up to a chair on a platform and escape Absol's attack because it's actually a trick chair for the magic act. The back falls out for a vanishing trick. And that's been a great choice for this movie, like, to have it set in the big top with one of the characters, a magician. There's so much visual candy and potential with this idea. Like, the set just lends itself to unique ideas and battle situations and such. I love it. So, Absol is a Pokemon that appears before a great tragedy, so the legends say. Today, though, it seems to be causing the tragedy. And I wonder sometimes if Pokemon of the Absol species don't, like, just have huge existential crises. Like, is this coincidence or is this happening because I'm here? Should I go help them or am I going to help them? Will I make the tragedy? I don't know. Like, it's it's got to be a rough life. <laughs> but Max and Jirachi run onto the stage with Absol following for a standoff. And May calls out Torchic to help defend her brother. 
Absol is not particularly threatened by this, but nice effort, Torchic. Pikachu does a bit more to actually push Absol back. It's then that Jirachi says that Absol is here for him. And then Jirachi teleports Pikachu and Torchic like 500 feet into the sky. Thank goodness they landed on that big top. Like, we gotta sit Jirachi down and have a talk about this. Like, it gets them out of danger by putting them in danger. Like, it's teleporting is rather horrible. Decidedly not helpful. Anyway, Absol then rushes at the humans and Butler, like, cool as a cucumber and just massive smirk, presses the button in his staff and a trapdoor opens underneath Absol, trapping it. Just completely takes it by surprise. It's kind of hilarious. And for the final trick, Curlia puts Absol to sleep. So, crisis averted. We can figure out what's up with Absol attacking the group and try to retrieve Pikachu and Torchic from the top of the building. As per usual, Jirachi is no help in any of these endeavors, feeling suddenly very sleepy. And so another day ends. Everyone goes to bed, hopefully gets Pikachu and Torchic down safely, and May runs outside to make a wish on the comet. And in the process, she sees Butler leaving the tour bus and headed to the big top. The camera follows him further. We see he's holding Jirachi. What? And placing him on that funky science equipment we saw earlier. Diane is there too, mentioning to Butler that Jirachi comes from a place called Forina, and Absol is probably here to take him home. They never should have taken him away. Butler has no second thoughts, though. No, he's going to force Jirachi to open a third eye in its stomach, which will see the comet and do something fantastical. In a flashback, we see Butler in front of a council. Team Magma is in a movie, guys! The region's baddies don't often get that, like, even if you count Jesse and James, and rarely are they relevant to the plot. Like, you have entered into some prestigious villainy now, sir. But Butler, it seems, was a scientist and was trying to revive a Groudon from a small piece of fossil. I mean, it worked for Mew. But though Team Magma is all about this, the experiment doesn't go as planned, and Team Magma is not about failure. I mean, you'd think they'd be more understanding given the massive amount of fail they achieve on a regular basis, but... And it's too bad, because in the movies, these things never fail like... Boodoop error. It's always like, call the fire department, explosions and smashing glass. So embarrassing and heartbreaking for Butler. I think he took it hard. He tells Team Magma he needs a more powerful energy source to spark the regeneration process. Like a comet and a legendary Pokemon and all of this magically stuff. He's humiliated, but Butler retrieves his piece of Groudon rock and determines he's going to revive this Pokemon and show Team Magma and all the doubters. Even if it means putting Jirachi through some pain to absorb the comet's energy. And you know, Jirachi supposedly grants wishes. You could just wish for a Groudon. I don't know why no one tried that. Or, you know, convince Max to wish for a Groudon if you think Jirachi wouldn't talk to you. Like, I don't know where Jirachi's wish-granting power begins and ends, 
but it feels like Butler jumped real quick to the path of kidnapping and torture. Like, no wonder Diane's getting worried. Well, remember that May saw a small part of this all go down, so when she gets back to the bus and realizes that Jirachi's gone, she concludes that, yeah, their hosts are up to something. She wakes up Ash, Brock, and Max, and they reach the big top just in time to see Jirachi trading giant bolts of light with the comet and explosions. Whatever's going on, this is serious business. But the explosion frees Jirachi for the moment, so Max can get to it. Butler's not deterred, like, the power, all I have to do is harness it. Although how he can concentrate on anything with that model standing next to him. Speaking of, she kind of tries to stop him, and he's like, no, it's for you, Diane. And she's like, you moron, I am 100% against this. And that declaration comes as kind of a shock to Butler. But the fact that he shoves her away, like, literally knocks her off her feet in the next frame kind of undermines his whole I'm only thinking of you argument. Poor Diane. So there's a fight over Jirachi. Pikachu thwarts Dusclops' use of Psychic. Absol is trying to break out of its cage. Max gets tossed and dragged all over the place. But eventually Diane grabs him and drags him to freedom. In the process, Jirachi wishes he were home, Wishes he could go to Farina. Hmm, Diane mentioned that place before. I bet it's important. So the kids and Diane all make their escape when Absol breaks out because now Butler and Dusclops have to deal with that. But Mightyena is able to put a tracker on Diane's bus before they're fully gone. And also Team Rocket is in pursuit via Balloon. But for now, we achieve a little distance, so as they drive, Diane explains some of Butler's backstory, most of which we've already put together. He was once a scientist for Team Magma, now he wants to get some sort of revenge by resurrecting the Groudon Pokémon after he got fired from the project. Groudon is a Pokémon that's like the epitome of lava, Team Magma's kind of obsessed with it, and all things ground and fire. And the energy source, the Millennium Comet, Butler could tap into that by draining it from Jirachi's body, so that doesn't sound super healthy. Speaking of healthy, there are no seatbelts in the back of this bus. This festival operation is not OSHA-approved, apparently. Well, obviously, the kids are going to help Jirachi get back home where it's safe, and so we enter the road trip portion of this movie. And bumpy, bumpy roads, enough that the tracker put on the bus is unwittingly knocked off. It might not matter, though. It's been on long enough for Butler to know where Diane's going. May continues to wish on the comet at nights, and she's never said what her wish is. I guess it's whatever your imagination comes up with. Given the timeline, it could be that she's wishing she'll win the upcoming contest. Or better yet, make it back from this road trip in time to still attend the contest. They do have a bit of a ticking clock. Uh, but they got some time. Ash, Max, and Jirachi, and Pikachu all fall asleep by the fire. My goodness, they look adorable. And Ash and Max bonding, like, it does a special thing to my heart. Anyway, since there's not much happening outside, May goes inside the bus for a drink of water and chats with Diane a bit, Turns out, Diane has some things to get off her chest. She talks about Butler's real backstory, 
when he was a kid who just wanted to make her smile. Showing off with his magic tricks, determined to be the world's greatest magician. And somewhere along the line, that train went off the rails. They were going to be a team. They were going to be so much. It sounds like Butler lost sight of what was really important to him long before he started the whole kidnap Jirachi campaign. Like, his wish, his hope is to resurrect Groudon, but it sounds like at one point in time, he and Diane both had some very different wishes. Diane's hoping that once the comet's gone, Butler will give up on this and go back to being a guy who laughs and want to make people happy. I'd like to hope so, but there is an Absol looming in the foreground, and I know foreshadowing when I see it. But the road trip is not all somber. I mean, Advanced Adventure is playing. Like, there's the classic bus gets mired in the mud situation and everyone trying to push it out. Like, yay road trips. Things going wrong are part of the memories. And again, nobody made a wish on Jirachi to speed this along. Ah, but maybe they learned their lesson from the candy. For all they know, Jirachi might have teleported the bus to another region. Maybe that's how they got in the mud. Like, Jirachi, I wish we could be at the other side of this mountain range. Boom! Right into a boggy crater. I'm kind of begging on Jirachi a little, like... But the thing is not real helpful. Then again, it's only awake for, like, seven-day stretches every thousand years. It... It's not easy to experience any sort of growth that way, to develop your common sense. But her kids do have fun with Jirachi, making friends with it. It, It's it's generally kind-hearted, so that makes up for a lot. But what strikes me the most is not just Max making relationships and memories with Jirachi, but how much the kids are strengthening relationships to each other. Enough that I'm wondering if that was the director's point, and if that's buried the real theme of the movie somehow like Jirachi's rock was in Forina, and you don't see the real gem of that beautiful place until you bust it out. Like, for all the big moment is, wow, we found this legendary Pokemon that only touches Earth every thousand years, and Max made friends with it. This movie could also be called Ash and Max's Brotherly Road Trip. Like, they've got a lot of bonding going on. If you showed this movie to someone who had never seen an episode from the Hoenn region, you could tell people that Max was Ash's little brother, and they'd probably believe you. After all, Max didn't inherit his mother's recessive genes like May did. But speaking of May, she's been more tender and sisterly in this movie than we typically see. The only one being business as usual is Brock, and his business as usual is nurturing and taking care of the others, so might not be a big deal. There is one scene in this road trip that intrigues me a lot. May is looking down at the comet, um, the comet amulet. There's three days to go, and she looks troubled. And she gets that look immediately after watching Ash and Max together, as if that sight triggered it. And, you know, it makes me wonder if her wish isn't something greater than winning her Pokemon contest, or if her wish is even for her. Like, I don't know what it would be. May tries very hard to not go treading any deep waters. But she's also shown that there is a whole unexplored ocean of feeling if you can coax her out of the shallow end. So, it makes me wonder if she hasn't, in fact, wished for something deeply personal with this comet.
something that looking at Ash and Max and Jirachi makes her think of, and that she's a bit concerned that it might not come true or something. Or maybe she's wishing she'd wished for something more meaningful on day one. Or she could just be feeling preemptive sympathy pangs for Max and Jirachi's eventual separation, I don't know. Anyway, the whole traveling party starts to get gloomy. Max is getting a melancholy that even Jirachi can't cheer up, and it all comes to a head with two nights left to go. May is looking up at the comet and turns over another corner of the star. And Max gets mad, tells her to quit counting, and runs off in a childish little rage. And Ash, since he's nearby and has apparently been adopted as Max's new older sibling, follows after him. By the waterfront, Ash and Pikachu sit down with Max and Jirachi and get ready for some heart-to-heart talks. Max has realized that he's only got a day or two left with Jirachi, and then he's never going to see his friend again. Ever. By the time Jirachi wakes up again, Max will likely not be alive anymore. Age works a little funky in the Pokemon world, but not enough to fudge our way through a thousand years, so... Papa Ketchum is going to impart some wisdom. He explains that Jirachi will be with Max his whole life, because sometimes friends have to go away for a while, but they still stay with you. Max will always remember Jirachi, Jirachi will always remember and be influenced by Max. And here, if there is a real translation difference between the dub and the original script of of any significance, it's this scene, because... In Japanese, Satoshi's super vague, like trying to explain these higher concepts of relationships and how they live through separations and that Jirachi and his comet might be on Narnia time anyway, so like maybe they see the world differently, I guess, or treat each moment as precious. Like Satoshi breaks off and admits he can't explain it all that well, but in the English dialogue, Ash mentions that a good friend left him a while ago and he misses her every day. Like, my heart, he's talking about Misty. And it's one of those things that, yeah, it's a script change, but not one I mind as much because both choices are good ones for the character. Like, to hear Satoshi suddenly get philosophical, like, he's not even looking at Masato when he's saying this, just cracks open a door to show just how much maturity he's capable of, but it's expressed in the language of a 10-year-old, so it doesn't really make sense. Like, that's hilarious and so fits that character. He's been through these types of separations tons of times with Butterfree, Charizard, Misty, but also with Sam, which I think is the big takeaway. Like, those two didn't even get a whole week. And then there's the legendary Pokemon he's come to know and shared huge experiences with, but will likely never see again. Witnessing Molly and the Entei born of her dreams and... You know, I don't think Ash actually knows how stuff with her family turned out, so that. And Death, he's seen Latia say goodbye to her brother and got a glimpse of what he saw as he passed out of this plane of existence. Like, Ash is like May. He tries to avoid treading those deep emotional waters, but when the situation calls for it, he puts on his wetsuit and he snorkels right in. So yeah, making friends with someone who's going to leave you soon and you know it's coming and you will never physically exist in the same space in the same way again, to your knowledge, 
like, trying to convey his experiences in multiple capacities to Max is going to be simultaneously deep and futile, and I love it. But I also love, alternatively, Ash calling out Misty, because that's a recent one, and that's an experience he can actually share with Max, because a lot of those other things are secrets or personal to, to him or to other people, or to have to unload a whole lot of exposition just for the explanation to make sense. But Misty is something specific and relatable and understandable that Ash can use here. It's tangible, and, and it might actually help Max. And we all know he's still thinking about Misty. He still carries around that handkerchief she gave him, but he's not the type to admit he misses her and th that he's sad he doesn't get to see her unless being honest is going to help someone else. And he can be honest now. He couldn't have in the first season, like, to admit Misty was special to him and allow himself to be vulnerable in that way about her... I don't think he really knew what they were to each other, but now he's comfortable in his relationship with Misty. Like, shipping aside, that friendship is something special. And it always will be special. And Ash doesn't fight it anymore. Like, in either language, so much of this scene is gold. And whatever he says, when Ash finishes his line, Pikachu jumps up on his shoulder, as if to reinforce that it is better to make a friend. To have a relationship that's deep and meaningful, even if someday you have to be separated. Which may not seem super important, because Ash and Pikachu have not been separated for, like, 300 episodes. They're never apart for more than five seconds. Except, when you consider, it's not Ash reaching out to Pikachu here, but Pikachu jumping up to be closer to Ash. Pikachu who shut everyone out. Pikachu, who wanted to be alone, wanted to fight its own battles, resisted the idea of friendship and partners and teamwork even when his own life was in danger. Pikachu, who couldn't trust, and we don't know what went on in his life to make him that way, but even if Match and Jirachi have a week together and only that, Pikachu says it's worth it. Pikachu, who on episode one would have said something quite different, now says, even if it all gets taken away, it is worth it. Have I mentioned that this scene is gold? Because it is. Now, when it cuts to day, our group finally arrives in Farina. And I gave up on tracking this journey through town maps somewhere back in Johto because pain. But I'm real glad that I never tried it through Hoenn. Like, I don't know where these kids are. They've been road tripping for days in a car. I can't stress this enough. Like, I can make it to Canada in less than 12 hours. They left as Mae was turning over night two. Now she'd be preparing to turn over night six. You could cross the entire nation of America in that time, depending on Diane's driving to resting ratio. I imagine she's not letting Brock take over, so she might have some more rest stops. Definitely getting some sleep in there, but still. If Japan wasn't all islands, they'd be in freaking Hokkaido by now. The night bus from Kobe to Tokyo takes nine hours. And that is a longer distance than the entire island for which Hoenn is based on. 
I'm guessing the scale of Hoenn is a whole lot bigger than Kyushu. Because, yeah, there's no way this works. Like, way back in the day when I was getting my citizenship stuff in order, it was not uncommon for me to, like, leave Friday afternoon from Utah, make it all the way up to Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada, get a good night's sleep, drive up to Calgary and deal with government stuff and drive back to Medicine Hat, get a good night's sleep, and then drive all the way back to Utah in order to get a good night's sleep for class on Monday. We're talking less than three days. These kids have had like four. You can cover a ton of distance in a car. I mean, I thought it was funny in the beginning about these kids going so far inland when May's got a contest in Slateport City, but that's irrelevant now. I have a long history of road tripping my way through the world, and I'm telling you, these kids are so far inland, they're basically in Korea. But since they've now arrived, welcome to Farina. It's beautiful, a paradise, full of Pokemon. And you get the feeling that this place is rarely touched by humans and maybe somewhat sacred. But the Pokemon don't seem scared of, of humans either, so that's, that's nice. They make camp without incident. When night falls, May pulls out the sister card to make Max go to bed, but like any little kid, he rebels a bit. And under the covers, he and Jirachi plan to stay up all night once the others fall asleep. It's like, you do know we're, we're here, Max, right here. We can all hear you. To be fair, as he points out, he's only got one day left with Jirachi. How is he supposed to sleep anyway? And on a side note... Does Max look a little bit crayon Shinchan in this shot, or is that just me? May starts singing the lullaby again, and the atmosphere by the fire is just so cuddly and tender, like, is this a sweet, quiet moment? Ash is like stroking Pikachu. This movie is all about these cute little seconds of people hugging and touching and singing and being tender with each other and being content in the moment like man and remember these little things because they will tie into the final theme when when i finally get around to talking about that but now the next day they run into absol this time it's not going to attack them after all they're bringing jirachi home so absol isn't antagonistic it's going to lead the way so they go through caverns and a huge cave and eventually reach a sort of open cave where Jirachi can see the comet in the sky. And, well, it's night. Final night. Jirachi feels called by the star. And that's about where Max loses it. He's crying and begging Jirachi not to go and asking that Jirachi grant his wish and stay forever. Everyone's watching this and, and they're sad and it, it's it's kind of awkward, too. But Jirachi eventually pulls away. He's gotta go, and so floats into the air. Jirachi opens his third eye, the true eye, I guess, to absorb the power of the comet, and then go to sleep for another thousand years. Jirachi is basically living the life of a cicada over and over and over. But it's said that the power absorbed from the comet is slowly released into the earth during those thousand years, making the plants grow and life flourish and all the good things. And while they learn this, 
Breaking forth from the rocks is a bunch of spikes that release purple light, and before you know it, Jirachi is trapped in a barrier and pulled up to where Butler has set up all of his science equipment on top of a huge rock face. I gotta say, well done with the reveal, Butler. That was a trick and a half. There, there was like a tarp and everything. And Butler cleaned out Team Magma's tech equipment when he got fired. Or he's got the same mecha supplier as Team Rocket. But he's ready to make a Pokemon reappear. He's got Jirachi, he's got machinery, he's got a comet. Let's get the show on the road. He places Jirachi in the machine and pulls down a lever. And like back at the festival, stuff with the comet happens. Lots of exchanging of beams of light and lasers starts tracing out the patterns on the ground. Like, this all looks very important. Meanwhile, the same purple force field that took Jirachi also prevents the kids from coming to the rescue. At least until Absol shows up to save the day. And now some of the local Pokemon, like a Flygon, they take out the spikes causing the force field. And, and now we can get into hero mode. The kids need to get up to where Butler is and free Jirachi, and Flygon is happy to help. And Ash, like, I love this part of his life, that the thing needs to be done, and now it's just natural for him to be like, okay, I'm gonna ride the giant dragon into battle, I guess this is Tuesday, and and bring your kid to work day, no less, because Max wants to come too. And I feel like three or four movies ago, Ash would be nervous and hesitant about this dangerous situation, let alone... Oh, by the way, can you take the small child with you? <laughs> like, now when Max is like, I want to come too, he's like, alright, just hold on tight. Like, Ash and everyone around him have just accepted that he is the boss. He's got this. <laughs> and it's all the better that this is basically Max's movie. Ash isn't even remotely the protagonist. I'd say he's the Deu Ex Machina, except he's been here the whole time. Like, he's just been twiddling his thumbs in the corner until the curtain opened on Act 3, and now he's like, SHOWTIME! Like, Brock and May didn't even get a chance to mobilize, Ash was already gone. Like, I have done this before, you do not waste time when the situation needs heroing. So, from the air, we see lightning tracing patterns of what looks to be an enormous creature, and it seems that once it's finished, we'll get a resurrected Groudon. But before we can save Jirachi and reconsider any resurrection procedures, the Flygon and its riders have to do battle with Butler's Salamance. This is a lot more adventure than anyone was planning on having this week. So we've got a high-flying battle on our hands, and it's, it's pretty fun to watch, like, like the, the aerial battle. Just remember, though, that Flygon is not Ash's Pokémon. It is a wild dragon who is not only okay with Ash riding it, it's taking battle direction from this kid without batting an eye. Pokemon mastery right there. Everyone accepts Ash is in charge. So Ash's plan, though, is to send Pikachu and Max up to the platform and drop them to free Jirachi and kind of shut down the machine while he and Flygon distract Butler and Salamence. And that works well. Pikachu does what it does best, which is rush in and smash whatever can't be already electrocuted down into atoms. Like, not to criticize the plan that worked, it's just it would have taken five seconds to look to his left and be like, I wonder if maybe we could just pull that lever down. 
like do the same job without wrecking everything. But you know, it's it's Pikachu. It doesn't do finesse. But either way, they did rescue Jirachi and are able to hitch a ride back with Ash and Flygon. Jirachi seems fine. But there's still a giant symbolic Groudon carved into the earth, and it's rising. Yes, May's touching moment where she reunites with Max and tells him how worried she was is cut off when a legendary Pokemon gets resurrected, and gee, this battle is not over. And the effects on this Groudon, like, woo, boy, it's impressive watching it come to life. And then it stomps along and trees just wither like ah crisis round two is on our hands and butler's watching this and says that this creature isn't groudon which i mean it looks like a groudon but yeah most pokemon we come across have intelligence if a language barrier like don't just destroy for the sake of destroying and they they feel very connected to the planet usually this one seems much more like a, a mindless rage monster who just wants to kill, and and it's merely existing is enough to suck the life out of the planet. Like, it's not supposed to be here. Butler's awakened something else. And Absol runs up like, I was afraid of this! I tried to tell you all! Does anyone listen to me? No! <laughs> it tries attacking Groudon, and it fails. And then Groudon shoots out weird tentacle things that just absorb Absol into itself. So yeah, this thing is not a normal Groudon. I don't know what this thing is. And after absorbing Absol, it shoots dozens more little tentacles out and winds them through the forest. It's going to absorb all the living things, too. Say goodbye to all the cute local Pokemon. And Team Rocket. So our human characters all meet up again, and Diane runs over to a nearly catatonic butler who's just staring at Groudon. She's like, tell me you have a plan to stop this, and he's like, no. It's like, by now, I'm sure Diane is seriously questioning what she ever saw in this dude. Even so, when one of Groudon's tentacles makes a beeline for him, Diane shoves Butler out of the way. And as she's getting absorbed into Groudon, she says that if this is the end... She's glad the last thing she'll see is him. Butler, you do not deserve this bombastic woman! My gosh, Diane, if she just isn't stealing the movie. Though Butler's ability to make angsty faces is second to none. Look at all those dark lines. Well, there's no time to mourn. We're busy running. The kids make a break for it. Butler flies up on Salamance, and they all try to escape Groudon, but to no avail. It gets May and Brock. Almost gets Ash, Max, and Pikachu and Jirachi, but Jirachi uses teleport to get them out of there, and then does it a second time when Groudon catches Wise. Like, all this teleporting, and it couldn't have teleported May and Brock, too? Or Diane? Anyway, they're also rescued by Butler and Salamance, who use Flamethrower to hold off the tentacles some. Those tentacles, by the way have evolved little snake heads, like, this monster could not be any more terrifying. Flygon shows up again, so Ash and Max can resume Sky Battle, still aided by Jirachi's self-serving teleport. <laughs> well, Butler's got a plan. If they can get back to his machine, which has been a little trashed by Groudon, and put Jirachi inside it, and reverse the polarity, 
It should take the energy out of Groudon and return it to where it came from. Ash is like, yeah, that sounds like a trap. But Butler insists he's on their side. He wants to make this right. He wants to see Diane again. And Jirachi decides to trust him. After all, he can't be all bad. He loves someone. So when Groudon gets Salamance and Butler falls like a million stories, Jirachi saves them both with teleport. Again, didn't save Diane, didn't save me and Brock. Selective teleporting abilities, I guess. But Jirachi tells Max and Ash that they should go with Butler's plan. So we go in, and things are really dangerous now. And I glossed over it earlier, but this is reminding me... This is the first movie event in Hoenn. It's the first real Earth might end, all you love could be destroyed scenario. And May and Max have had a little excitement in traveling with Ash, a little weirdness, a, a lot of Team Rocket kidnappings and minor peril, but nothing on this level. And so it just strikes me, like, that May crying over Max, clutching her brother to her and shaking, that means something. Because for Brock, it's like, oh, is it summer? Should've known. And for Ash, it's like, so whatever that it's downright hilarious. But for me and Max, this is completely out of their paradigms. They, they did not sign up for this. They did not know it was coming. Any signs that this might turn into a real big freaking deal wouldn't have been recognized. It's beyond anything they could have imagined. And suddenly they're facing the real possibility of death. Or whatever other weird things Gradon can do to them. I just have a feeling that when this is over, there's going to be some campfire talk about how blasé two members of their party have been about this whole thing. And it's going to be revealed like, oh, those two years in a row where we got massive summer storms with the potential to wipe out whole regions, if not the entire Earth? That was you? We saw that on the news, dude. This happens to you every year? <laughs> like, So since Jirachi is basically a Groudon magnet, Ash brings it, along with Max and Pikachu, aboard Flygon, and they're the distraction, while Butler and Salamance go to set up the machine. It's a little worse for wear between Pikachu and Groudon, but Butler manages to keep his feet and turn the system back on. But when he goes to reverse the little capsule containing a piece of Groudon flip it around and so reverse the polarity, I guess, the ground shakes and knocks him off balance. And since that whole machine is on a slant, the capsule goes tumbling over the side. Down, down, down. Have I mentioned that Ash is in full hero mode because he made a shoestring catch right out of the sky while riding a Flygon? Nice job to him and Flygon, my word. At this point, I'm not sure Misty would recognize him anymore. Like, does Brock call her from time to time and just be like, I'm, I'm serious, Misty. He's, like, capable now. I don't know what happened. I was only gone for a week. <laughs> like, Anyway, Ash returns the capsule. They get the machine all revved up and reversed, even though it's still sliding slowly down the mountain. Flygon and Salamance keep fighting Groudon while the humans do their techie-techie stuff. And they've got their work cut out for them since Butler falls off the platform. He's okay. Ash manages to flip the switch Butler missed, and then light pours out, sending energy back into the earth. 
Groudon panics, makes one last grab for Jirachi, but Butler jumps in front of it to protect the Pokemon. He may be absorbed into the monster, but at least he'll be with Diane. And those are his parting words. We can see that the machine is working, but I'm not sure where the energy is going or coming from now, and it, it really doesn't matter. It, it's leaving Groudon, but that Pokemon is not going gently into that good night. It starts attacking the machine, Pikachu attacks right back, destruction amok. Groudon tries to absorb Jirachi by just, like, body slamming them, like, just presses its stomach over top all of them, and this Goop just oozes over everything. This is simultaneously one of the most dangerous and grossest things Ash has ever had to deal with. But then, Jirachi gets all the energy it needs, and it comes alive. Light show to end all light shows. Groudon looks like it's trying to hug the sun and failing. And that light shoots Groudon up into the sky and actually connects with the comet... And then shooting stars rain down, each containing a person or Pokemon that was absorbed. Yes, statistically by at least 50%, it's raining men. Hallelujah. We get Butler back, Diane, Ashbrock, May and Max, and Jirachi. And Jirachi now uh, that we've, you know, wiped out the crisis, has to go home. It's, it's the last night. And here we get something interesting in its parting words. Jirachi says Max is the amazing one because Jirachi made lots of wishes and Max made them all come true. Huh. Jirachi did call Max Wishmaker when they met. Sometimes legends, you know, they are just folklore and oral history. They don't always get things right. Jirachi wished for a friend? Check. Wished to go home? Check presumably wished at some point to save his home and not die and defeat Groudon and all those things. Check and check. So yeah, that's that's sweet. Meanwhile, I'm not so sure Jirachi can actually grant any wishes itself. It can teleport stuff, but otherwise I haven't seen any real wish granting going on. Any ability to do so or any compulsion to do so. In fact, Max made a direct wish of him at one point and nothing happened. So, all along, it's people making dreams come true for Jirachi. And maybe that's the message here. We pray and make wishes and hope for all these things. And we wait for a big flash of light and, and a miracle. Something impossible and astounding and don't often recognize when those things are fulfilled through the ordinary people around us. We're each each other's miracles, and we make each other's wishes come true. Jirachi has one last wish. It's bedtime. He wants a lullaby, that special song that May sang. And so the kids all grant Jirachi's wish. And I still don't know if that's Kaori or Veronica on May's singing voice, but definitely Veronica and Eric on Ash and Brock. There is no mistaking that. And maybe that's part of why May's singing voice was retained across certain dubs, like contrast. It's one thing for Ash and May to be having a conversation with the same voice actor. It's another thing to have them singing in unison. That might have been just one step too far. Anyway, the singing is really warming my heart, even though this choir is not blending at all. But it's a sweet moment. Even Absol looks touched. And oh my goodness, the score here, like, is that an oboe? Like, 
the arrangement when Jirachi's absorbed back into the earth and goes to sleep. This really is just so pretty. Have I mentioned that this is one of my favorite Pokemon songs of all time? Because it, it is. Everyone is just in awe and feeling all the warm fuzzies, except for Team Rocket. We cut to them, and they are just like, what is this? <laughs> it's been a weird day for them. Absorbed by a legendary, and now they're watching this massive LED light show, and they've got none of the context for the, the movie's events. I'm sure they're wondering if they accidentally took a giant dose of acid or something. Like, none of it makes any sense. But it's not all bad. In, in fact, once they get over th the general unease, they can't explain it, but they feel like all their wishes came true. And maybe, you know, the wishes that matter, what they really want deep in their hearts, maybe this moment is that for them. It's something to think about. And whether or not Team Rocket is going to put deep thought into that, they are going to enjoy it. And the next day, Diane gets her wish. Butler is done with the mad scientist routine. He's realized that being together is the most important thing. That's something Diane's realized for a long time. So the two of them are going to run off happily into the sunset and take some couple time, live here in Farina for a bit and commune with nature, get back to basics, maybe make some hemp clothes, whatever they do. They seem happy and hopeful about it. and. And just, you know, reconnecting with each other and what's really important in life. And they're willing to give the kids a ride back into town. Like, goodness, I hope so. They were driving for three or four days. You realize this makes this movie, like, ten days that May was not in Slateport City, assuming that the time to get back from Farina is the same as the time it took to get there. Thank goodness they got there early to get registration taken care of, because they are cutting it real close now. Hopefully the kids take a quicker and more direct route back, and Butler and Diane can, like, trade off on the driving this time, so. But sheesh, they must have completely circled Hoenn by now. <laughs> anyway, this talk reminds May that she didn't turn down the last point of her amulet on the final night of the comet. There was kind of a lot going on, after all. She frets for like a second, but then realizes it doesn't really matter. She's got to make her own wishes come true in the end. So they all walk back to the bus, and the final moment of the movie is Max looking out over Farina and hearing a voice. Jirachi telling him they'll be best friends forever. Jirachi will never forget him. And for a being that can apparently live for millennia, forever has some weight behind it. Max looks at peace. He's never going to forget Jirachi either. That friendship of theirs is going to cause ripples for the rest of their lives. Like, those memories will matter, and they'll matter forever. And after Max walks out of the shot, boom! The music strikes up. The end credits, like, oh, this music. Like, I don't know how the licensing logistics worked out to make this happen. I'm, I'm sure it was all sorts of lawyer-tastic. But the English and the Japanese tracks are actually using the same song, just the English dub has different lyrics. And midway through the credits, 
actually has the Japanese version of the second verse. Just this movie is all kinds of unique. A lot of different things were going down, and what a special little treasure it is for it. So I did do a whole special episode about this ending theme with Poke Press. You can find it on their YouTube or my Patreon if you want more on that. For now, let's talk about the credits themselves, because they look like they're getting back to the coast, or at least to a body of water, and then one of the vendors from the festival, the hippie dude, arrives and offers them a lift the rest of the way. So yeah, it seems they do eventually make it back to Slateport City in, in decent time. And one night, the kids are all looking up to the stars and pointing out constellations, and there's something really cool with this part of the credit sequence. The sky shows a lot of real-world constellations and star positions, only when the design is traced out, we see they've been given Pokemon um, imagery, like Ursa Major and Ursa Minor are an Ursa Ring and a Teddy Ursa. Like, it's really quite cute. So for any astronomy geeks out there, like, this this could be quite fun. Like, it's just, it's a very beautiful and unique credit sequence that I, I quite enjoy. Very clever. But we finally made it to the end of the movie. And like I said, there was a theme going through this that was kind of buried underneath all the action. And this movie was something I'd been thinking about for a while because I had noticed with the next movie we're going to cover, movie seven and definitely movie eight, there is adherence to a specific theme and it's like every scene of the movie, every interaction kind of exists to support that idea that they're developing. Like the world's tightest thesis paper, which has some pluses and minuses to it, but for a while this movie felt like it should fit in with that, like it's structured in a similar way, but yet at the same time it doesn't. And that's because, like I said, they were very subtle about executing that idea. The immediate takeaway, the takeaway that most people get right off the bat is like, oh, this movie is about like making your own wishes come true. That's that's the moral of the story. You don't just wish for things, you have to make them happen. Except, when you actually think about that, you realize that not much that happens in the movie actually supports that. Like, it doesn't contradict it either, but the movie doesn't really put a lot of effort into developing that idea. Like, it's not like we find out what May's wish was or that anybody else is making a bunch of wishes and then, like, just sitting around and waiting for them to come true. Like, this movie is not The Princess and the Frog, that Disney movie, which is about that and develops that idea quite beautifully over the course of the movie. But this doesn't. And it required a lot of deeper thought. And as I've, you know, gotten the opportunity to think about this movie, what eventually gave me my epiphany was probably something that is not intentional in the slightest, although it might be. All the star imagery that's in this movie. Like, the credit sequence is, like, full of constellations. There's a lot of looking up to the stars. Jirachi at one point calls the comet a star. Jirachi's shaped like a star. Mace Pendant is shaped like... There's a lot of stars. And the Japanese word for star is hoshi. And something that may or may not have been intentional, like, we'll never know without, like, a proper interview or, like, a making of piece on this movie, 
But one thing I noticed is hoshi with an extra e syllable on the end is an e adjective that means want, desire. So like I said, I don't know how intentional that is, but there is some potential for wordplay and seems very telling in a movie that is all about people expressing their wants and their desires and their hopes and their wishes. It, it is a real crying shame that this is not one of the Japanese movies that I own, so I couldn't go through the dialogue and be like, is everybody in Japanese phrasing everything with the word hoshi? Because if they are, that's brilliant. But whether that connection by itself is intentional or not, the fact still stands. This movie is about finding what you're really wishing for. It's about the difference between petty wants and true desire. And pretty much every character in this movie with significance has a moment where they discover what it is they're really wishing for. Like in the beginning, Max is wishing for candy, Brock is wishing for girls, Butler wants to realize his wish of resurrecting Groudon, Team Rocket wants Pikachu, May wants Max to shut up, May wants whatever it is she's wishing on her, her comet amulet thing. And all of these characters have multiple points in the movie where they stop and they realize... What do I really want? What's really important to me? And in most cases, realizing that the thing they're wishing for, the thing they're really wishing for, is already right there beside them. Because as much as Butler wants to resurrect Groudon, that's not what he needs. That's not what he's truly wishing for. That's not the desire of his heart. And he finds that out after, you know, crisis hits and he's like, oh, what I really want is to be together with Diane. And I had that. I had that all along. May realizes that what's really important to her is Max and she almost lost him. Like all the other things in life that she might want, her real wish and her dream and her hope is really her family. For Team Rocket, it's the same being together with each other and be able to share these special moment moments and to be content in life. That's all they really want. And once they realize that, as Team Rocket said, it feels like all our wishes came true. And that's the real thing of this movie is as it progresses, people like in Pokemon, like all the characters in this movie going from petty wants and and desires to a deeper wish and a deeper hope and it's present in every scene the pokemon greeting jirachi when it comes back to farina like they don't know jirachi they were not alive last time it touched down on this earth neither were their parents or their parents parents like in a way it's almost like religious people's looking forward to the coming of the messiah like they've been told jirachi is gonna come in a like you know at a certain point in time and it's gonna be special and important and you need to treasure it but that's a hard thing to hold on to when you can't see it that's a hope and that's a wish that is deeper than a lot of the smaller concerns of the day and above all the wants and the hopes that people come to grips with is the one of 
relationships and friendships. Whether, again, it's the Pokemon creating a relationship with a Pokemon that they've they've never met, they might never meet in their lifetime, but feeling a love and co- a connection so powerful that when Jirachi does arrive, they're friends. Or whether it's Max making friends with Jirachi and now having to say goodbye. Or Ash and his myriad friends like Misty, who he's had to say goodbye to. Butler and Diane, who were not physically separated, but were emotionally separated for a while by Butler's own doing, and then got to come back together. And Ash and Pikachu just being themselves. And this movie seems to me to be all about that wish, that universal human wish that we will be together with the ones we love. That the people we love and make friendships with, that 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 we can hold on to them and that will continue and that that will matter. Because as Ash said, sometimes friends have to go away for a while. Separations happen, whether you want them to or not. And sometimes they're the slightest bit permanent. And this movie, like many other Pokemon moments before it, and what happens to Jirachi in this movie is not remotely like death, but it's hard not to draw that parallel because that is the human experience that we will all have to go through with our loved ones at some point. And that's, it's something we all wish for is companionship, is for connection, is for friendship. The first thing Jirachi wished for when it wakes up is a friend because it's lonely. That's something we can all relate to. And then a separation from those relationships and those friendships and that love is also something we can relate to, whether at this moment it's speaking to you on the level of moving to a new place or like Butler and Diane having a fight that comes between your friendship and maybe ends it or puts it in a bad place for a while, or maybe something more permanent where your friend or loved one passes to a different plane of existence and you will never see them again in this mortal plane. That wish for love and companionship is universal. That experience of having it taken away is also universal. And this movie seems to say very boldly, keep wishing for that. Don't stop wishing for that. Keep hoping keep loving, realize that it's the one thing that you're really hoping and wishing for, and it's the one thing that really matters, and it will continue to matter when it's not physically present. We all think we want so many things, but the thing we really want, the thing we're really wishing for, is love in all its forms, and even when it hurts, don't stop wishing for it. Don't let it get buried by things that don't matter, little petty wants that don't mean anything and won't bring you that same happiness. Keep wishing for friendship, even knowing that it might get taken away in less than a week, because that wish to be together with the loved ones will come true in a way that you don't expect, because you make it come true. Like, there are some very powerful thoughts in this movie, but ultimately it all comes down to the difference 
between what we think we want, the little things that we wish for out loud, and the things we really want, the wishes we have in our hearts that often don't get said. And I think this is just a very beautifully done movie in that it can speak to a lot of different levels, like whether we're watching it more for like the plot and the action, or whether we're looking for something a little bit deeper at the time. Because it is just that little bit different, it's quiet and subtle, and it just breathes this movie with its pacing. It allows you to appreciate things in a slightly different way than, say, movie three, which was also loaded with symbolism and, and I still believe is one of the greatest Pokemon movies ever made. But that movie definitely works in a different way than this one. And I think I think the craftsmanship in this movie really allows it to speak to some very deep and abstract ideas about what's really important in life. But as Satoshi himself said, I probably don't explain it that great anyway. So I'm just going to end it there. Thank you so much for listening to this movie. It was a lot of fun to do, and, and I feel bad that it had to take so long just to get it out there, but I hope it was worth the wait. I hope you all had fun, too. It's truly a treasure of a movie, and I love it so much. And I know a lot of you guys do, too. Like, it's been a good year or two of people hitting me up on, like, email and Twitter of being like, so when is movie six dropping? Like, you're gonna get around to it eventually, right? Like, this is definitely a beloved movie in the fandom, and for good reason. And like the movie itself, its ending theme is also much loved. Poke Press and I did a whole special episode talking about how we loved it, both in English and in Japanese. Uh, I believe Pokemon Crossroads has hit me up a few times expressing their love of this ending theme. Anime Guy 01 thought it was the greatest Pokemon ending theme and suggested that I do it as a special opening and ending theme for this episode. And so I did. I love the ending theme to this movie, um, Chisakimono, A Small Thing. Uh, the English language version is called Make-A-Wish. I, I, I truly love it so much. Like, in my musical pursuits, learning to play guitar, learning to play piano, learning to sing... This is always one of the songs that I pull out and use, like, teach me how to make this sound pretty. And progress has been slow, but I guess today you guys can tell me how my success rate is. Because you've heard the opening theme where I, I sang it in Pikachu speak with really questionable acoustic guitar accompaniment. And to close out this episode, I'm going to do a human language cover of the song. While you're listening to that, if you want to leave any comments about this episode or the movie, you can visit pcappypodcast.blogspot.com or hit me up at Facebook or Twitter at pcappypodcast or send an email to pcappypodcast at gmail.com. And as always, you can subscribe and rate and review and listen to this podcast on iTunes or Zune or wherever fine podcasts are not sold. But above all, thank you so much for listening. This has been Peak Happy Podcast. Gotta catch them all.